And we're going to read just two verses. We're going to read verse number 20, sorry, 33 and then 34 from Luke chapter 23. Jesus, the Bible says this, and when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the one on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Everything that Jesus said on the cross, I believe, had, had meaning. It had prophetic meaning as well, I believe. And some of it pointed back to, to the Old Testament and what was happening even at that moment. And some things were speaking about things to come. And so today we're going to talk about Father, forgive them. So the very first words that I could find of Jesus on the cross according to the Synoptic Gospels, were these words about forgiveness. He spoke about, you know, the need for forgiveness. And really, that's fitting and appropriate that he should speak this first because it was to this end that he came. He came for no other reason, no other purpose than so that man could be forgiven of all of our sins. I'm glad that he came for that reason. Amen. And when you remember the hole that the Lord dug you out of, and if you were raised in church your whole life, then think about the hole that he dug your dad or your mom out of, or both. And you would have been in the same hole, but deeper. Because <laughs> you would have dug it deeper. But thank God he came. Amen. From the book of Luke, chapter 9, the Bible says this, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command the fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he, have you ever wanted that to happen, even if secretly, Lord? Just, on, just this one time, let it happen. <laughs> Go get him, God. I think we've all, we've all been there. Verse 55 says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, as I said, we've, we probably have at least wanted to pray that at some point. And hopefully you haven't really actually wanted to pray that, but maybe you have. Uh, but nevertheless, this was a paradox shift happening in the days of Jesus. And we cannot really blame the disciples for feeling this way because remember that, you know, we, we read from Malachi and then to Matthew chapter 1 and we think, oh, we're into the New Testament. But really, really theoretically, the New Testament, the New Covenant didn't really begin until he died on the cross. So they were still living under the law of Moses, right? You know, Jesus came under the law, according to Galatians. You know, the, the Bible says that he came under the law and in the likeness of sinful flesh. So, so there was that. But in the Old Testament, you know, you've heard people say, I'm getting ready to go Old Testament on somebody. And, and we know what that means. And, uh, and so you know, the Old Testament is filled with these kind of stories. You know, so the disciples had this in mind. They thought that they were filled with righteous indignation when they said, let us go and just cast, call down fire from heaven. And, 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 and Jesus didn't say, well, you can't do that. He said, that's not the right attitude to have. Recall that Elijah actually did call fire down from heaven upon the men whom King Ahaziah 
sent to call him out. Matter of fact, he did that three times. And the fourth time they came, what was it, groups of bands of 50 soldiers tried to go up to the mountain to get Elijah. And finally, the last one, because he kept calling down fire from heaven and consuming them. If I was in that last little group, I'd be nervous too. I'm getting ready to be cooked up into a big crispy critter. And, uh, and, and so, you know, so they came humbly, humbly. And they said, Lord, you know, they said, Elijah, we want you to spare the lives of our men. And just go with us. It's not our fault. We're just the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. So Elijah went. But that was the kind of spirit that Elijah was, was over. Remember also that Elijah slew <clears throat> 150 prophets of Baal in a single day by himself. And so he might have had a little help from Israel, but the Bible does say that he slew those prophets. Um, the earth opened up and swallowed up the men who rebelled against Moses. Remember Korah and his gang? And Moses said, whoever is the man of God, I, I, I think there was a little bit of Moses. It, it may be in the back of his mind that kind of felt like, you know, I was happy in the backside of the desert, living my life in peace and quiet. I didn't ask for five million kids, you know, children to follow me around grumbling and complaining all the time. So, you know, if, if, if God sends me back to the backside of the desert, I'm okay with that. Moses might have felt like that. I don't know. But he said, whichever one of us is the man of God, you know, the earth is going to open up and swallow the other one. Moses was a very meek man. He did not promote himself. And so you know what happened with that. The earth opened up and swallowed up Korah. A lion slew and ate a prophet of God for disobeying a word from God, a single word. If I lived in the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure I would be lion food already. And so would some of you. The law of Moses in and of itself demanded the death penalty for multiple types of offenses like adultery, taking God's name in vain. Children disobeying their parents was punishable by stoning to death. Oh, dear God, have mercy on us. If we lived under the law of Moses, we'd have a bunch of dead kids now, there's, the Bible does say that. Let him be stoned. If, if you got a, if you got a kid that's not listening, is not paying attention, you know, bring him to the camp of Israel. Let him be stoned. I don't know if that was just one of those scary stories God wanted. Because, you know, that'll put the fear of God in a four-year-old. You know, the law of Moses says, if you don't obey me, you got to get stoned to death. They're, <laughs> they're going to pay real good attention to that. So, as far as we know, there's no example of that actually happening for that reason. But it was in, but it was there. It was in the law, and for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. And there is an example of that. God expressly said, "Don't pick up a stick on the Sabbath day." Somebody went out and did it because that's what people do when their parents tell them not to do something. You know, they naturally want to do it. So when, 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 when God told Israel, don't do this, naturally they wanted to do it. So somebody went and picked up sticks. Moses went, and he actually had to ask God what to do about this man. I know the, the law says we should stone him, but God, are you serious? You really want us to stone this man if you're picking up a stick? Yes, stone him. So that was the law. The law of Moses came demanding payment for sin. It represented the justice and the swift judgment of God. Matter of fact, if the Canaanites and the Amorites and all the other heathen nations lived under the same law, they would not 
had likely have fallen to the depth of depravity that they felt. And Israel only fell to that level when they stopped keeping the law, when they stopped you know, making the law as the focal point of their life. And in the end, they fell into great depravity. John 1 and 17 says this, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So, so the law and the swift justice of the law came by Jesus. But grace was introduced by Jesus Christ. The law demanded justice and Calvary paid that justice. That was that the law demanded. 1 Peter 3 and 18 says this, For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So this word unjust here from the Greek actually means wicked. Sorry, from the Hebrew. Actually, no, it's Greek. It actually means wicked, treacherous, heathen, or unrighteous. So when it says unjust, it doesn't just mean somebody that didn't do something right, but it means a wicked, treacherous, heathen, unrighteous man. Now, that is the state that we are in before the blood is applied to our life. Before we're born again of the water and the spirit, we're we're unjust, we're treacherous, we're wicked, we're heathen, we're unrighteous. Now, men often do not see themselves in that state. But that's the scriptural definition of man without God's redeeming love applied to his life. And it was for this reason that Jesus came into the world. John 12, 27 says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. So, for, for, so forgiveness means letting the guilty go free while the innocent takes on the punishment for their crimes. Men don't often like and appreciate others when they pay for their stuff. If you've ever been to a restaurant and, and you're, maybe you're going with another couple and, and the other couple, one of the guys speaks up and says, I'll pay. And you're grateful for it. But it makes you a little bit uncomfortable if you're honest, doesn't it? it at least it, it always does. We're grateful for it, but because you want to be the person that can pay for it. You don't want to be on the receiving end. You want to be on the giving end. So, so when somebody offers you know, to buy you lunch, it's a nice gesture. It means friendship. We always usually take them up on that. It's kindness. And only pride would really stand in the way of that. But it always makes you uncomfortable because we don't want to be obligated to people. We don't want to feel like, like there's some form of obligation or like we're in somebody else's debt. And so in this case, we had a debt that we could not pay. We could not pay it. Uh, and so Jesus paid a debt he did not owe so we could live free. And that's the simplicity of the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell right there. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of the simplicity of the gospel. That we were dead in our sins. And so Jesus stepped in and paid a debt that he could not pay. The words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, fulfill the words and prophetic words of Isaiah 53. <clears throat> when Isaiah said this, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, when the Bible says that Jesus made intercession for the transgressors. This word intercession in the Hebrew is paga, P-A-G-A. 
And this is interesting. Whenever I cross-reference this word to find out every other place it was mentioned, it's also the same word as the word for arrival. As in Genesis 28 and 11. And he lighted upon a certain place. This word lighted means he arrived. So he arrived in the Greek, it's pagah, the same word as is used for intercession. And tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took stones of that place, put them for his pillows, and laid down in that place to sleep. Remember, this was Jacob. And he's getting ready to see the vision of the angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder. Remember that, okay? Because we'll go back to that in just a moment. Now, so why would the same Hebrew word be used for two seemingly vastly different meanings? But it is, and here's why. The sense of arrival would derive directly from contact as one's making contact bodily with a place. And the sense of intercession would be a less direct kind of contact that one makes in the course of approaching the one to whom they are interceding and making physical or spiritual contact with. So when the Bible says uh, that he lighted upon a certain place, in other words, he came to it, he went there, uh, he arrived there, he touched it, he was physically in that location. And when the Bible says that Jesus made intercession for us, it means that he took us and put us where he was, and then he stood where we were. Like if I'm here and I'm in, in where I'm at, this circle stands for me being right and right standing with God. And that circle stands for me being in wrong standing with God. He went and he switched places for us. He arrived at the place where we physically and spiritually were and he became that. And, and Paul used that idea in Corinthians and he said, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And so, you know, even we can carry this a thought further and say that when you are interceding for somebody, you are arriving at the place where they are at and putting yourself in their shoes and standing in the gap for them. That's intercessory prayer. Now, back to Jacob's vision. So Jacob is getting ready to see a vision. Remember, he's running from his brother. He just inherited his birthright by deceit. He's getting ready to go through a really difficult 20 years. And, uh, and, you know, 20 years, and really, it's going to be the rest of his life. It's going to be tough from this point forward. <clears throat> Up to now, it's been pretty easy. But Jacob's season is getting ready to change. God is getting ready to thrust him into being a great nation or making him into a great nation. He falls asleep, he uses a, a stone for a pillow, and he's in this place. And, he, and, it, and in his vision, he sees a vision of, or he dreams a dream of a ladder, and angels of God are sending and descending upon that ladder. Now, whenever you get to John chapter 1, and, the, and Philip and Nathaniel ran to Jesus, or, and, and they saw that he was the Messiah, that was, sorry, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel came back to Philip, and he said, you know, come see a man, this man from Nazareth. And then Philip said, well, can anybody, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he said, come and see. Oh, Bible quizzers, if you've ever memorized or quizzed over the book of John, you know what I'm talking about. And so, so what happens next is Jesus approached Nathaniel and he says, or Nathaniel says to Jesus, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. So he, he pronounces him as the son of God. And then Jesus said this, because I saw, I said, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Hereafter, you will see the heavens open and the son of man ascending and descending upon the son of man. 
Now, Jesus was referencing Jacob's vision in Genesis 28. And he was saying, Jacob had a dream, a vision of a ladder, and angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder. But Jesus was telling Philip and Nathaniel, I am that ladder. I am the extension from earth to heaven. And when he said, you're going to see the angels of God going up and down the ladder, I believe he was referencing, you're going to see the kingdom of God come in a mighty and a powerful way because I am going to be the intercessor for the transgressors. I am going to stand in their gap. So here we were standing in a place of, you know, we did all this stuff our whole life. We didn't live for God. We're liars. You know, we're wicked people. We're unrighteous. And Jesus came and he said, you know what? I want you to come over here and stand over here. You can stand where I was. And the Ephesians says it like this. We are seated in heavenly places where we were once estranged from God. We are seated with Christ. In heavenly places. Not just standing, but we are seated. You know, nobody ever sat down after they had entered the veil of the temple. After they had gone beyond that veil, no high priest ever sat down. Because, you know, redemption was not accomplished. But the Bible says that Jesus sat down there. In other words, it was a symbolic meaning that it was fulfilled, that it was accomplished. And so when the Bible says that we are seated with Christ, it references our position of authority where we are seated with him in Christ. And Jesus said it like this in another place. I did great things and you're going to do great things. Because I'm going to ascend to my Father, and then I'm going to come down in the form of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to fill your hearts, and I'm going to baptize you in my Spirit, and then you are going to be my hands and my body and my feet. And that's the idea of how he made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus made contact with our sin on the cross and permanently nailed it there. However, those who crucified Jesus did not fully understand what they were doing or who they were crucifying. Acts 3 and 17 says this, And now, brethren, I would not that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. Now, you know, even the Roman soldiers did it through ignorance, but the Jews mostly did it through ignorance. They didn't really have the revelation or fully understand to whom they were crucifying. And when they saw when they got the revelation, it only came by the preaching of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. When he said, he didn't mince words, he said, you did this. You are the ones that did this. You are the murderers and betrayers of the Holy One. And so there was a time when God allowed ignorance and refused to fully judge it. In other words, from the words of Acts 1730, and the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now cometh, I want everybody to repent. When it says that God winked at, it means that he kind of closed his eyes to it. He kind of turned his cheek to it uh, because they did it through ignorance. That was under the law of Moses. Of course, you know, you can read that there are many places, you know, where God did wink at sin. Even, even Israelites, when David, for example, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, should have been stoned in you know, in that place, but Nathan said, you're not going to die. So there were times when they should have suffered judgment, but instead they suffered mercy. So even with God's own people, he winked at sin. But now, but he says, now he's commanded all men ever to repent. In other words, now is not the time when God is winking at sin. He is staring it straight in the eye. 
And he is demanding that all men everywhere repent and believe in the gospel. Now at the utterance of these words on the cross, Father, forgive them. Jesus closed the door of the Old Testament law that demanded justice and judgment for sin and opened the door of grace and mercy to flow in. And an entire dispensation came screeching to an end with these prophetic words of Jesus on the cross. Recall to whom and about whom he had spoken them to, not just the Roman soldiers, but as I've already explained to his own people to whom he came. As John 1 says, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And an entire generation that would see judgment come upon them in 70 AD when Jerusalem was ransacked and burnt to the ground. This was the generation to whom he spoke those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God had absolutely no reason to bring mercy and forgiveness upon that generation until God spoke these words on the cross. And when he did, the door of forgiveness and mercy swung open and allowed the same ones who stood mocking him and, and at the foot of the cross to come and receive the Holy Spirit a few days later on the day of Pentecost. In the short term, that would have been so that they would not experience the judgment in 70 AD. But in the long term, it would be so that they would be grafted in to a spiritual Israel, the Israel of God that Paul spoke about in Galatians chapter 6. There's a natural Israel and there is an Israel of God. There is a church that, is, that has been grafted in through faith. Just as Abraham had two sons, one born of a bondwoman and one born of a free woman, we are not the sons born under spiritual bondage. We are born free in the spirit. Aren't you grateful for that? That when I was born again of the water and the spirit, he made me free from everything that I once battled. Everything. I've been set free. And we do not have to come under the power of that anymore. Okay, and just like that, judgment was turned to mercy as the guilty were free. Isaiah 63 says this, For the days of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury had upheld me. Then he says this, I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring, them, I will bring down their strength to the earth. So first... He speaks about a day of revenge or judgment, but then seeks out someone who could be an intercessor and stand in the gap, and he found nobody. So in return, he said, the land will be destroyed. Now, that is almost verbatim the same picture that John saw in Revelation chapter 5. Where it says, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, nor one of the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open the book and to read the book, neither to look on it. And one of the elders said to me, weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and of the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. This is a perfect picture of salvation where he said, I looked around and I looked for somebody uh, who could open the seals thereof. That was the, uh, the title deed to the earth. In other words, who's going to redeem mankind? Who's going who's to win back what Adam lost in the garden? That's the same picture that Isaiah said. Whenever he, he looked around and he was speaking through, 
you know, speaking the words of God. And he said, I looked around and I was going to judge the world. And I looked for a man to stand the gap, but I couldn't find anybody to redeem man back to me, back to my God, back to myself. So in another place in Isaiah, he said, my own arm brought salvation. And in another place in Isaiah, he said, he made bare his holy arm. You know, Jesus is the right hand of God. Are you getting this tonight? That Jesus is the power of God to redeem mankind. That man, that sacrificial death on the cross is what allows us to come into the presence of God. And let me tell you this as we stand. When your life is out of control and sin has overtaken you, there stood a lamb as it had been slain. God isn't looking at your sin today. He's looking at the blood. He's, he's looking at you through the eyes of mercy and forgiveness. And that is the same lens that he looked at us thousands of years ago when he hung there on that cross and he bled and died. He saw you and he saw me. The Bible says for the joy that was set before him. That was the church. Aren't you grateful for that today? Let's lift our hands and let's just thank the Lord for that. Come on, let your voices out for just a moment. He's worthy to be praised.